Hi, I'm Paul Haverschrud, host of The Cost of Living. It's a show about money and how it shapes our lives. In big ways, like why inflation could get worse if we all make more money. Here's the hard truth in all of this. Workers are going to have to eat that real wage loss. And small ways, like what's the fastest way to order fast food? That first Big Mac that comes out of the kitchen is going to the drive-thru. Check out The Cost of Living. We're on CBC Listen or wherever you get podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Hello, I'm Neil Kirksall. And I'm Chris Howden. This is As It Happens, the podcast edition. Tonight. Blast trauma. An Anglican minister is grieving after a strike hit the hospital he helps run in Gaza City, which local authorities say has killed hundreds of people and Israel says it is not responsible for. Abrupt exit interview. A Saskatchewan human rights commissioner quits over the government's new pronoun policy, saying she can't support what she feels is an attack on the rights of vulnerable children and she can't defend it to her own trans child. Class warfare. Dozens of children in Haiti are finally home after three days trapped in their school by the gang violence that erupted right outside the school doors. Star vehicle. After a visual effects artist died last year, his friends found a decades-old model of a Star Wars spaceship in his garage. Now it has sold for several million dollars. A strong twerk ethic. The mascot. For Brooklyn's WNBA team is a twerking elephant with some serious junk in the trunk and an actual trunk, naturally. Obviously, we'll, obviously we'll speak with a super fan of Ellie the Elephant about why she's pachyderming them in to the stands. And double-double toilet trouble. The owner of a British porta potty company says he was slightly baffled to learn that someone had <laughs> stolen 35 outdoor loos, especially because some of them were full. As it happens, the Tuesday edition... Radio that sees that as a lose-lose situation. Today, the worst of many current fears in Gaza came true. The health ministry reported that an Israeli airstrike hit the Al-Ali hospital in Gaza City. The ministry says hundreds have been killed. The Israeli military denied the claims. It says its own intelligence suggests that the Palestinian Islamic Jihad group was actually responsible for the attack. Reverend Richard Sewell is with the Anglican Diocese of Jerusalem, which runs the hospital. We reached him earlier today in Amman, Jordan. Have you been able, Reverend Sewell, to get in touch with your team at this hospital? Um, it's not possible to get in touch directly with them right now because they are just dealing with the most urgent, tragic situation. Um, and, you know, speaking on the phone is not the priority. But uh, I'm picking up one or two little bits and pieces, but actually following it myself on all the variety of news sources. Mm -hmm. What information do you have so far? Well, we know that our hospital was hit on Saturday uh, by Israeli missiles, which hit the building, severely damaging two of our rooms um, and injuring four people. And um, that's sort of being interpreted as a warning shot. Um, we had 6,000 people sheltering in the grounds of the hospital um, and then patients and staff, maybe another 600. And after the missile hit, um, 5,000 people left, leaving 1,000 of those really had nowhere else to go. They were, they were um, you know, in, invalided or whatever, unable to get away, and then the staff and the patients. So um, it really was the most vulnerable that were, were remaining there. These are civilians? Yeah, no, absolutely. Mm -hmm. I mean, they're just local people living in the neighborhood who, who thought that the hospital was a safe place to go. And then today, what do you know about today's attack? We're just getting early reports at this point, all attributed to to the health ministry in Gaza, controlled, we know, by Hamas. But but we're just getting those early reports. So what are what have you been able yeah. to find out? Well, we we know that our hospital was hit and the hospital is run by the Anglican Church, the diocese 
practice of Jerusalem. We receive no funding um, from Hamas. We are entirely funded by charitable donations from all over the world, from Anglicans um, and other church uh, organizations. And um, uh, what what I understand is that uh, a missile landed in the courtyard around the outside of the building of the hospital, and that's where most of the people sheltering were encamped, not actually in the building, but sort of in, in the open air. And um, that it's just caused massive, massive loss of life. It, you know, numbers, it's way too early really to be talking precise numbers, but we know it is in the hundreds. Um, and it, it it's just absolutely devastating um, that, that civilians should be targeted or in the firing line, whatever. Uh, you know, these people, okay, they are in Gaza City, they're in the northern area, but they were unable. St- hospital staff cannot abandon patients, and patients, some of them, cannot be moved. So what are you supposed to do? Uh, and the people sheltering were there because they were desperate. If they had had a chance to go elsewhere, they would have done. These ones will be very elderly, invalid, uh, not w- without cars, uh, unable to make that long trek down. And anyway, they don't feel safe to make that trek down because they know that people have been hit going down on that road and they felt in the hospital, surely that would be safe. Obviously, they'd had a hit, so they knew sort of rationally that it wasn't. But 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 I think they felt they had no choice and just hoped they would be lucky. And tragically, appallingly, they were not lucky and they were not safe. What will the people who, who survived this and your team, the team in that hospital that managed to survive, where will they go? What will they do now? We we just don't know. I mean, there is no safe passage out of Gaza. We've been trying to get people with dual nationality uh, or foreign nationals out. There, there, there's no escape. They're just sitting targets. And uh, the, the south area, which is supposed to be the safe area, that's getting bombed. And the north area is supposedly the non-safe area, and that's getting bombed. So these people are innocent civilian sitting targets i mean all civilians are are innocent they are they they are so vulnerable and and the loss of life is horrendous and very very distressing um whoever it is but when you feel personally connected as we do because it's a hospital mm-hmm. that 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 we run and we feel responsible for it it really does uh, hit you in the stomach, and it, we're grieving. We're sad. We're desperately sad, and and to be honest, quite angry. Just personally, for you, Reverend, you know, you live in Jerusalem. You're you're in Amman, as we've said at the, at the moment. You're very composed as we speak. I know this is your work, and you've had to talk about difficult things in the past. But to be far away and also dealing with all of this, how are you? How are you coping? I don't think I am coping terribly well. I feel I feel broken. We've been crying around the kitchen table, four of us here, who all have personal connections into Gaza, who all know this hospital um, uh, through the people that we relate to. We 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 are we are grieving. We are we we are so desperately sad and frustrated. And you know, I feel maybe I sound composed now. I don't feel composed. I, I, I feel desperate. Reverend Sewell, uh, I appreciate your time, uh, particularly in the middle of, of everything that's going on. Thank you. Thank you very much. Reverend Richard Sewell is with the Anglican Diocese of Jerusalem, which runs the Al-Ali Hospital in Gaza City. We reached him earlier today in Amman, Jordan. After we recorded that interview, Israel denied responsibility for the airstrike, saying it suspects a misfired Palestinian rocket hit the hospital. Today, the students of La Saline Salesian School in Port-au-Prince, Haiti, are in touch with their families. But a few days ago, it wasn't clear if they would ever speak again. Starting on Friday, hundreds of primary and secondary school students were trapped inside the school while gunfire erupted outside. 
and securing their release in the midst of a full-blown gang war was no easy feat. Bruno Mass helped coordinate the response and has met with a number of the freed students. Mr. Mass is UNICEF's representative in Haiti. We reached him in Port-au-Prince. Bruno, if you could take us back to Friday evening, when did you first learn, how did you first learn that these students were trapped? Well, um, the the fightings, um, the tension and some fightings between armed groups in the area were starting a few days ago. So on Friday, clashes uh, between armed groups were uh, reported in very specific areas, all within the metropolitan area of Port-au-Prince. And in the early afternoon, uh, over 400 students from the two Catholic schools, École Marie-Auxiliaire, Latrice, and École Congreganiste Salésien de Don Bosco, located in the La Saline neighborhood, found themselves trapped mm. amidst violent uh, clashes, unable to leave, and with their parents unable to reach them. The students were, in fact, forced to spend this first Friday night at the schools. So were they, Bruno, were they taken as hostages or were they just pinned down because of the gunfire? No, they were really trapped and, you know, uh, hampered to go because the level of violence around the school. Um, so the, the school authorities managed, in fact, only Saturday morning uh, around approximately 200 male students were evacuated with a lot of risk, uh, as explained mm-hmm. by the school principal, uh, who guided them uh, mm-hmm. through a market uh, when it was a little bit less tense. But by late Saturday, uh, you had around 100 Asian students and some as young as six years old that were still trapped in the yeah. two schools. Why were only male students let out? In the first group, well, uh, security issue and and potential risk for for the girls. You know, in the current environment, uh, we are facing uh, uh, so many uh, cases of gender-based violence, rape, kidnapping that um, the, the 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 school principals and and ourselves we we were very cautious. Uh, you know, to push uh, f- at any moment the, 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 you know, the support to, to get them exfiltrated. Those agonizing days, what kinds of things, what kinds of reports were the teachers with these young people telling you? Well, they, they were all terrorized, you know, at any moment they thought that the, the armed group could enter in the school uh, loot or, or making some abuse against the children and particularly girls. So they were all terrorized. The, the schools were even used as a kind of position on the roof for, for armed groups to uh, to fight against each other. Mm-hmm. So uh, they couldn't sleep, basically, during, since uh, Friday. Uh, you had a lot of young children completely, entirely terrorized, and uh, the elders were trying to protect and, uh, you know, give some reconfort, you know, mm. and attention uh, to the smallest one. But uh, they didn't get proper access to water, neither access to food. They remain in the same clothes than Friday, and they didn't have any, you know, acceptable condition to, to survive like this. Can you give us a sense, Bruno, of what went in to securing the release or getting these children to safety? We were in continuous communication with the school principals from the beginning. Uh, secondly, we were closely working with the Ministry of Education and the, the minister uh, hour by hour, and then in partnership with a local NGO, Combined pour la Paix et le Développement, we set up a, a coordination cell to follow the, the tension, the, the intensity of the fighting in the street in front of the, the schools and sometimes uh, in the, on the roof of the school. And, um, you know, we also engage uh, with some local leaders there, trying to convince them to, you know, to allow the children to be evacuated. But it took uh, us... Uh, 
quite a long time to 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 mm-hmm. to read Sunday evening and and being secured that uh, the local um, arm group will not you know arm the children. So it was a very difficult decision we took. At the end, they had to walk um, into the slums in small streets and they read uh, the bus that UNICEF, you know, uh, secured for them to, to, to transport them in a more secure place. So it was really three days filled with stress, emotions and uncertainty. And on Sunday, when that, that last group of 60 students finally made it out, what was that like for you? You you cannot imagine the, the joy, the emotion uh, of the 60 uh, children mm-hmm. when they were released, you know, uh, an, an unbelievable moment. But this event was a, a poignant reminder of the persistent violation of children's rights due to the ongoing armed violence. How are they doing? Well, they are doing fine. They they got some psychosocial support today, uh, some uh, uh, food, uh, drinks, and you know they could really change of clothes and 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 try to find back some normalcy uh, with the sisters, uh, the Salesian sisters that they are taking care of, and and connect with their parents also because they are on pensionnat. Most of the parents are in the departments uh, far from them, so they could really secure their parents about a happy end, I would say. But, you know, the point is that this incidence like this can happen at any time and almost anywhere in Port-au-Prince and uh, increasingly in other parts of the country. We have to remain committed for, for yeah. children's rights here. Bruno, thank you for your time. Well, thank you so much. Thank you for the attention. Thank you for the support. Take care. Bruno Mass is UNICEF's representative in Haiti. We reached him in Port-au-Prince. When WNBA fans pile into the Barclays Center Arena in Brooklyn, they're not just going to see a basketball game. They're going to see a show. That's because the mascot for the New York Liberty team is unlike any other. She is a twerking elephant. Here's how one halftime show sounded. One, two, one, two. Can you cut the lights down in here and make it nice and dark? Yeah, like that. Prepare the stage for the queen. Prepare the stage for the queen of hip hop soul. Let's get it. Let's get it. Pump it. Pump it. Pump it. Pull up in this dance. So we got your own. Then you're floating. So you got to dance with me. Come on, everybody. Get on down. Now, if you were at that game, you would have seen Ellie the Elephant wowing the crowd with her dance moves in full Mary J. Blige gear. Some fans have become obsessed with Ellie and with the mystery of who it is twerking inside that costume. Amelia Bain is one of them. She's a video editor and host, the host of a podcast about the WNBA called Let the Girls Play. We reached her in Brooklyn. Amelia, I just watched the video of that of that performance. What did you tell people the first time you saw Ellie the Elephant perform? I mean, I just couldn't <laughs> believe it the first time I saw her. I mean, as you saw in that video, she's like not your average mascot. She is a fierce performer. She's like dancing in a way that I have never seen any other sports mascot do. Fantastic dance skills. But what else what else do you see that's that's so different because the fandom for this mascot is quite deep too. I think she has star power. Like you heard the crowd, like I imagine that's how people react to the real Mary J Blige performing, <laughs> but this is like a person in an elephant costume. Something is happening. Like Ellie is hitting people in a really special way, I think. What is it, do you think, that, that hits people or, or resonates with them so much? Because they're clearly sports fans. They're there. They're used to halftime shows. You know, they're enjoying the basketball. No disrespect at all to the amazing yes. basketball players. But, you know, I saw them wearing the elephant hats. Like, they're coming for this. 
I think that basketball for some people is kind of in the background and Ellie is the star of the show, which is a wild thing to say about a team that's in the WNBA finals right now. They're putting on an amazing show on the court, but they're somehow being overshadowed by this mascot. I mean, Cardi B tweeted about Ellie the Elephant today. Uh, Really? Was she at a game? She wasn't at a game, but Ellie posted a video dancing to Bongos, the Cardi B song. (laughs) So I think Cardi said like, I love this, but put me to shame or something like that. Yeah, I think she's done Lil' Kim as well. Like, they're definitely paying tribute to great female hip-hop artists as well. Well, They are. Yeah. And definitely. Is there a signature dance move of Ellie's that, that you like? Well, there's this thing called the Ellie Stomp, uh-huh. which is during a timeout in the game. She comes out and, like, basically just struts around the court and then stomps a foot, and the rest of the dance team pretends that, like, they're getting, like, knocked down by the force of Ellie's stomp. It's it's so great. <laughs> yeah, the rest of the dancers, we should say, like, they work so well in tandem together. It's a fantastic performance. But in terms of interacting with the crowd, that's a big part of mascot life, certainly. What does Ellie do on that front? So when the game is, like, when they're playing basketball, Ellie is walking usually into the crowd, taking pictures with people, but not just, like, little kids. Everybody, all ages, people are loving Ellie. (laughs) But she also kind of flirts with the people sitting courtside. Yeah. She kind of grinds on the security guards that (laughs) stand to prevent people from running on the court. I don't know if you have seen, like, this is sort of an old reference, but like Fergie's London Bridge video where she's trying to get, like... It's my co-host's favorite. Oh, yeah. (laughs) No, I'm just It's definitely that. (laughs) Okay. So it's a full performance all around the court. You mentioned pictures. You sent us a great photo that you, you had a moment with Ellie up close and personal. I had a real moment. Yeah. My wife and I joke that we look happier in that photo than we do in like any of our wedding pictures. <laughs> and we look very happy in our wedding pictures. Just something magical about Ellie. You have a, a, a little one as well, a one and a half year old. How, how do. does your child respond to to the performance, the magic that is Ellie? I mean, I think going to a basketball game for an 18-month-old, like, there's a lot to get her attention. But when Ellie is near, she, like, really focuses in and she is captivated. You mentioned the talent that is inside that costume, but the team will not say who is inside. No. Only it's that a real it's, Brooklyn mystery. It's a Brooklyn mystery. One person is playing the part. What are some of the theories out there about who this might be? My personal theory is whoever is in there is an incredible athlete, like really strong. This is not just anybody. This is somebody who's an incredible dancer, but a really athletic dancer. Do you think people really want it to be revealed or is it better if it, if it stays a secret? I think some people want to know. Personally, I don't want to know. I think it's more fun if it's a secret because I, I don't know. If, I wonder if we knew who was in there, if we would not see Ellie as this full character quite as much. And how recently did Ellie become a part of the team? Because uh, I I watched this video where there was a handover from, I think, what was the previous mascot, Maddie, right? Yeah. So they used to play at Madison Square Garden. Mm -hmm. So Maddie was the mascot. And that was another confusing thing. The first time I went was, I didn't know why there was an elephant, but it's apparently (laughs) because P.T. Barnum, to prove that the Brooklyn Bridge was safe, walked elephants over it. What do you hope it does for the sport? What do you hope Ellie Ellie does for the WNBA? I mean, we touched on this earlier, but I hope that it just draws more attention to uh, incredible basketball that's being played at this really high level. Some people don't even know that the WNBA finals are happening right now, but the people that do know are so invested. So just the more people we can get paying attention to women's basketball the better, because it's so much fun. It, it really is. Do you think the Liberty will go all the way? If you'd asked me before Sunday, I would have said no. But mm-hmm. after Sunday's game, I think they, yeah, yeah, the Liberty are going to come back. Can you imagine if they do win, what Ellie will do? <laughs> oh, my gosh. I, what she's doing without a championship is already amazing. I really cannot wait to see what she does. Are you going to dress up as Ellie for Halloween? How many people do you think are grabbing that costume? Um, not enough. I'm dressing my baby up as Ellie. <laughs> so I will maybe be like a dance crew member escorting her. Brilliant. 
I want to hang out with you guys on Halloween. Amelia, thank you so much. This was fun. Thank you. Amelia Bain is the host of a podcast about the WNBA called Let the Girls Play. She's in Brooklyn, and yeah, I'm a huge fan of, of Fergie. Oh my gosh, uh, he was wonderful. reciting the lyrics as we sat here during that story. You Every guys show. missed it. Every show. You can see Ellie the Elephant for yourself on our website, cbc.ca slash AIH, including that photo of her with Amelia and her wife. It's just a matter of time now before the Saskatchewan government passes the Parents' Bill of Rights. As we told you on As It Happens Before, one of the most controversial parts of that bill is a policy that would require school officials to get a parent's consent if a student under the age of 16 wishes to change their name or gender identity. The provincial legislature is debating the bill this week during an emergency sitting, and Premier Scott Moe says he will use the notwithstanding clause to push the policy through and prevent a court challenge. That is a step too far for Heather Cutai. She's a former Paralympian and the mother of a trans teenage son. As of yesterday, when she submitted her resignation letter, she is a former Saskatchewan Human Rights Commissioner. We reached Ms. Cutai in Saskatoon. Heather, what kinds of conversations have you been having with with your son over the last few days? Well, my son knew that when the with, not withstanding clause was um, brought into this story, he knew that I would be struggling with staying at the commission. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I told him, you know, honey, I think I have to resign. And he just sort of bent down low, he's a really tall kid, mm-hmm. and looked at me and said, just don't go quietly, Mom. What was it about Premier Mo's use of the notwithstanding cl- clause in particular? Why did that cross a line in your view? Um, well, because it really is an, an anti-trans move. It's a move um, that is against the rights of these vulnerable kids who identify as trans, non-binary, and gender diverse, that he would pull the notwithstanding clause out on their backs um, was what I took issue with. As you know, the the Premier and proponents of of this move say this is about parental rights. We hear that uh, a lot in, in, in these stories in other provinces as well. Why is that? Why is that phrasing, parental rights, uh, or that idea, why is that anti-trans? Well, it's not, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and that's the thing, is that it looks as though it's very well-meaning mm-hmm. because there's nobody who doesn't want to be in their, involved in their kid's life. I think that's a common goal for us and the government. We all want what's best for our child. We all want what's best for the children of this province. Parental rights are not a thing. They don't exist. I have rights as a person, as do you, but you don't have rights as a parent. You have responsibilities and obligations as a parent. Why do you think that is how this is being described? Well, I think it's because they know that the legislation wouldn't hold up in court. I think that's why they're using it. You know, I can't I can't speculate, but I imagine that must be the reason why. And maybe they just don't get it. You know, I... I I think in part this issue is about parenting and being humble as a parent and not knowing everything. Uh, I know that when our our own kid came out to us, we had a lot to learn and we had to humble ourselves in realizing we don't know all the things. And that's hard to do, right? It's hard to say that you don't know something or that you're not in charge or that you you uh, don't have all the power that you thought you did. It's interesting, as I was, I was reading uh, about you and your son and your family, you know, given your position, it, it was interesting that, that he felt scared to come forward. <laughs> right. Because looking in, it, we would seem like the ideal home, <laughs> both being involved in human rights and social justice and, you know, all the things like you would think that this would be an easy home to come out in. It, and he... He was terrified, for sure. And it took us making mistakes and 
sometimes getting things wrong and sometimes getting things right and agreeing to just keep our uh, connection open and and like I said before humble ourselves when we realize we don't we don't know everything that there is to know about identity did he did he come out to teachers or at the mm-hmm. school first before coming to you it was kind of at the same time mm-hmm. but the uh, the drama teacher at our uh, local high school was uh, really accepting and I almost want to say like enthusiastic that he was becoming more of who he truly was. We get the idea that trans kids are becoming someone else, but that it's actually the opposite is true. He was just becoming more of who he really is. And uh, she, she helped me for sure, just by leading by example. It's not as though I wasn't accepting and understanding and loving, but I, I, she helped me become better. So given your experience and your son's experience coming out, what would you want parents who, who feel differently about this policy, who want this policy and they want to be included in decision making and, and be aware of, of what their children are, are saying and doing? I think I would say a couple of things. One, that we have, the com- we have a common goal here. We all want what's best for kids. Two, I think we need to understand that language around this is is always evolving. Language as a whole is always evolving and changing, and it always has been. As a person with a disability, I've been using person-first language for years and years, and lately I've been calling myself a disabled person because my thinking about disability has evolved. I think the same is true for gender identity. I think I would ask parents to try to see what their unconscious biases are. Why do we believe that that certain type of dress is only for girls or people who identify as girls? It's hard, I'll give you that, but it's better, you know, to borrow a quote, to live a considered life and ask these considered questions of yourself. When you talk about how difficult it was to step away, now that you've done that, you hit send. Yep. You know, how do you think about the students, uh, like your son, who who need change and support, and you were part of creating that kind of change in your in your former role. Do you worry that 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 yeah. that, that you won't be able to do that now? I'm more worried about the kids mm-hmm. um, than my role at the commission. Um, I'm worried about the kids. I'm worried that they will be harmed by this. Um, my son is worried about them. Early on in this, uh, when when uh, when the legislation was first proposed, he said to me, "I'm I'm worried about my trans brothers and sisters who have not yet come out, Mom. So I worry about those kids too. But I, I won't be bored. <laughs> You'll be busy. <laughs> no, I'm busy. I, I'm involved in a lot of other community uh, yeah. organizations, and and I'll find more. I'll find ways to be." Yeah. Well, we appreciate we appreciate your time, Heather. Thank you. Yeah, my my absolute pleasure. This is one of my favorite shows to listen to. Oh, well, we appreciate that. Thank you so much. Thank you. Heather Cutai resigned as a Saskatchewan Human Rights Commissioner yesterday. We reached her in Saskatoon. Hi, I'm Michelle Shepard, host of Uncover Charmini from CBC Podcasts. In 1999, 15-year-old Charmini Anandavel disappeared on her way to a job that police believed didn't exist. Four months later, her remains were found in a wooded ravine. I revisit the case that has stayed with me for over 20 years, ever since I first covered it as a cub crime reporter for the Toronto Star. You can find Uncover Charmini on CBC Listen or on your favourite podcast app. When Greg Jean died, the Hollywood model maker didn't just leave behind a legacy on film. He also left part of his legacy in his garage. 
Mr. Gene, who won an Oscar for his work on Close Encounters of the Third Kind, died last year at the age of 76. But in addition to his love of visual effects, he also was a passionate collector of movie memorabilia. And his collection held much more than even his closest friends imagined. After his death, they discovered a model of a Red Leader X-Wing starfighter that was used in the first Star Wars film in 1977. This weekend, it sold for $3.1 million U.S. or $4.2 million Canadian. Gene Kozicki was there this weekend and also when the model was discovered. We reached him in Los Angeles. Gina, it's really quite fitting that there was uh, a battle this weekend as this model went up for auction, given the model that we're talking about and its role in the film. Describe what that moment was like at the auction. It was really something to see. Uh, it really came down to two bidders. And one was in the room, and then there was the sort of the mysterious bidder on the phone. <laughs> and it was kind of like watching two old-fashioned dreadnoughts, you know, trading blows in an Errol Flynn movie. One, <laughs> you know, put in a bid of $2 million, then it became $2,050,000, then it became 2060000 you know, or, or, or what, whatever it was. But it kept going on. It was about seven and a half minutes of... Uh, for some sheer terror, I'm sure, because b- both of them wanted it and uh, they didn't know the outcome. We know in the end that it went for more than four million Canadian dollars. Who was the winning bidder? Uh, the person is sort of known in the collecting circles, but I'm going to leave it up to him to uh, reveal uh, himself. Just to be clear, it's not you. You're not pulling one over. On it's, not, it, it's, <laughs> it's, it's not me. I, I wish it were. <laughs> you were there, though, in the garage. You've seen it up close. I've, I, I actually handled it. Oh. Um, so, you know, when Greg passed away, we knew that his family had a huge task ahead of him. All of his close friends knew that he had a large collection, though I don't think there were too many people that knew exactly how much stuff he had. So we volunteered to help go through it. On the particular day we found the X-Wing, the task was to go through uh, one of the garages. So my task was to sort of clear an aisle. And the first box that was blocking our, our my way, it was a big box. And it was just filled with bubble wrap, just clean, unused bubble wrap. The second box was also packing materials. And it's like, oh, my God, you know. Greg is like my 90-year-old mother who saves wrapping paper or you know, for Christmas presents. <laughs> I yeah, feel targeted it, here. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and then the third box that came out, I opened it up, and it was filled with packing peanuts. And so there was kind of a groan, and I said, well, hang on a second, guys. I think there's something in here because the box feels heavier, mm-hmm. and I started scooping peanuts. And then after a couple of minutes, there was the nose of the X-Wing. And did you know and instantly what you were looking at? Instantly. Even? Yeah. I knew instantly. I, I, you know, listen, I've been building models of X-Wings and looking at photos of X-Wings and Y-Wings and TIE Fighters and the Starship Enterprise since I was 10 years old. Oh. So I knew instantly. And there were, there were four of us there. But we pulled this out and it's like, holy, well, we'll say cow, but we didn't <laughs> use that word. Um, it's like, holy cow, this is a real a real live X-Wing from Star Wars. How did you know this was the one that was used in the filming? You know, models that are made for movies are made differently than models that are made for fun. And this one had all the hallmarks. It checked all the boxes. It had an aluminum armature. It had the nose could come off and you could see the connecting point for the electrical uh, system that's in there. You could look through the wings and you could see the gears and the motors were still in place. And so we knew, without question, this was one of the hero models that was used on uh, Star Wars. And quite frankly, it was, we, we likened it to a religious experience. <laughs> I know a lot of uh, Star Wars fans w- would feel uh, exactly the same way. So I, I think you're, you're in good company there. Well, select company, because you got to see it and touch it. Well, and- what, was, what was impressive about the auction was that Heritage set up a large display room. And there were people flying in for the two-day auction and the preview that they weren't going to bid. They knew they didn't have, you know, $3 million or $2 million or even $100,000. 
They just wanted to see all this stuff because it was such an incredible thing to see all of this stuff on display. All of the costumes were on mannequins. All of the props were in nice display cases. Um, The X-Wing was there. The Stormtrooper costume was Mm -hmm. assembled. There was artwork um, and there were photographs of Greg working on some of the material that, you know, he worked on that was being sold. And so it was a, it was just a wonderful exhibition of, you know, Greg Jean's, uh, both his work and his passion for, uh, for collecting. Did you know that he had this model? You knew he had a vast collection. We had no idea. We had no idea. You know, Greg started collecting baseball cards when he was five years old. And that branched out to comic books, then it turned into, you know, props and costumes. So we knew that it was a treasure hunt. You know, we knew that there was at some point there was going to be, you know, Howard Carter discovering Tutankhamun's tomb uh, type of type of thing. <laughs> not to overstate and, it at all. <laughs> not, well, you know, for hey, for, for certain no, for people, sure. you know, everybody collects their passion. Yeah. And The fact that so many people came to Dallas Mm -hmm. to see all this, I think, is a testament to uh, Greg's collection and to what that meant to a lot of people. And what did Greg mean to you? I mean, you did lose lose a friend. What do you want people to to take away about the kind of person he was? Greg was a great guy. He was a great guy to work for. He was a great friend. You know, he gave a lot of us our start in the business. He was very willing to let us sort of learn while we earned You know, I worked for him in the early 90s. And, you know, they say you're not supposed to meet your heroes. But he was everything that, you know, you could you could imagine. Um, I have fond memories working for him in a, you know, dusty old model shop and listening to L.A. Dodger baseball games in the summer, eating pizza, you know, sitting on a wooden box, talking about old movies and old TV shows Mm -hmm. and things like that. Well, thank you for sharing those memories, uh, Gene. Uh, it's been great chatting with you. Thank you. Yes, thank you. Gene Kozicki was a friend and former colleague of the model maker and collector Greg Gene. We reached him in Los Angeles. A lot of families were already struggling to afford university tuition, and for some of those families, it just got twice as hard. Last week, Quebec's provincial government announced that starting in fall 2024, out-of-province students will pay nearly double the tuition they do now. And now the smallest of the province's English language university says it might not survive that fee hike. Sébastien Lebel-Grenier is the principal and vice chancellor at Bishop's University. We reached him in Sherbrooke, Quebec. Sebastian, were you consulted at all about this proposal? No, we were not. I was informed two days in advance, and the uh, the message was that the decision had been taken, this decision would be implemented, and this was just as a matter of courtesy. How much uh, of your student body at Bishops comes from out of province in, in any given year? It's a bit under 30%. Uh, so you can imagine it's a huge chunk of our students has deep financial implications, but more fundamentally, it really is about uh, the identity of our institution. We've been around for 180 years, and we've always prided ourselves on having a uh, diverse student body with students coming from throughout Canada. So this is uh, slated to really change that uh, identity of our institution. We, We believe that the vast majority of our Uh, Canadian out-of-province students won't be able to afford coming um, to bishops anymore. So you think it'll change the the makeup of the student body, but also it's going to be a a sort of a two-tier feeling? Yeah, there's going to be a a two-tier in terms of of, uh, tuition fees, but that's already the case. Um, Out-of-province students already pay more than Quebec students. They pay three times as more, and what they pay is actually the national average in terms of tuition fees across Canada. So they're, when they're coming to bishops, mm-hmm. they're basically paying the same amount as they would pay if they went anywhere else. Mm-hmm. Um, now the project is to double that, so to make the uh, cost of coming to study in, in Quebec prohibitive uh, for most uh, out-of-province students. Quebec's Minister of Higher Education, Pascal Derry, was on The Current with Matt Galloway this morning. And she said this is about creating a more level playing field for English and French language universities in Quebec. Here's a bit of what she had to say. As a minister, 
I need to be able to rebalance because obviously it's a public, a hundred public funded system. I need to be able to rebalance that kind that the negative impact that we've seen in uh, in the deregulation policy. And this is all about that. This is all about rebalancing the network, making sure that the French institutions also can benefit from um, from uh, an increase of uh, of students of international students, of obviously Canadian students, of French students, of Belgian students. We need also to make sure that this deregulation policy benefits all of the institutions. The minister is referring in part there to recent deregulation of of tuition for international students in Quebec. Have French language universities, in your view, been suffering disproportionately because of that? Well, I can't say they've been suffering disproportionately. Uh, It is true that they've been less successful at attracting uh, foreign students uh, because not as many foreign students are interested in coming to Francophone universities. But that problem has been addressed by the ministry. Uh, There has been uh, additional funding that's been granted to French language universities specifically to attract international students. So there's other ways to go about dealing with the problem she has identified. Mm -hmm. The solution that is proposed is going to be destructive for English language institutions in Quebec. When you say destructive, bottom line, what will it mean for bishops financially? Bottom line, uh, it means a very significant portion of our funding is going to disappear uh, on top of uh, the impact on our identity. Um, this, we feel that the effect will be catastrophic. I've said in other media that I feel that this is an existential threat to our university. We will, we stand to be the university that will be most affected. Um, and we're the smallest university, uh, that we have 2,650 students at the university. Uh, but we stand to be most affected and this is really existential for us. The minister did address the situation at bishops specifically as well. Here's a bit of that. It's smaller. We're talking about 3,000 uh, 3, students. There is a lot of Canadian students there that do pay lower tuition fees, but I'm very sensitive to the situation of bishop. I told them I was going to sit down with them and see what we can do to better accompany them. There's no way that the bishop will close. We're not going to let this happen, and mm. it won't happen. What would you need to hear you know, at a potential meeting with the minister that would... That would put you at ease. What I would need to hear is that um, in understanding the particular circumstances of bishops, we would get an exception from this measure. Um, We'll see whether the government is willing or not to uh, do that, which is necessary to preserve our historical institution. I'm, uh, I, and, and what she said uh, on the radio reflects uh, private conversations we've had, and I'm, I'm grateful for her understanding, but I'm still waiting to see actual measures or proposals. So we have no idea what these measures could be. If it comes down to trying to secure an exemption for bishops in particular, what's your sense of how Concordia and McGill might react to that? Um, I can't speak for them, of course. What I can say is that on the principles of the policy, we stand uh, shoulder to shoulder with um, Concordia and McGill. Uh, we feel that this policy will be uh, in the w- detrimental to Quebec, and uh, we hope the government will reverse course. The minister has said this is about creating a level playing field. What do you think it's really about? Um well, it, from the minister's uh, own admission during their press conference, both uh, Minister Derry and Minister Roberge, it's about English in Montreal. Uh, they feel that there's too much English in Montreal, and they feel that um, out-of-province students are a threat to uh, French language in Montreal. Um, I disagree. Uh, students that come to bishops are curious about Quebec. They're curious about the French language. A lot of them have been in immersion in the past. Um, and um, they want to know more. So we need to make it easier for them to uh, learn more about French language, learn more about Quebec. So we would be looking for measures to help us better uh, take on that challenge um, instead of of seeing punitive measures. What are you hearing from, from your staff, your faculty? They're concerned. What we're hearing is that a lot of uh, our prospective students will be priced out. Uh, they want to come to bishops. They won't be able to do it. And, of course, our staff and faculty are very concerned about the future of this institution. Um, you know, we're doing the best we can to uh, represent uh, the impact this will have on us and to uh, 
try to come to some understanding with government which will preserve us. Uh, but um, this is a cause of great worry. Sébastien, I appreciate your time. Thank you. Thank you very much, Neil. Sébastien Lebel-Grenier is the principal and vice-chancellor at Bishop's University. We reached him in Sherbrooke, Quebec. In an interview with the BBC earlier this year, a Honduran father recalled watching his daughters scream and cry as U.S. border officials took them away from him. It would be nearly four years before they were reunited. His family is one of thousands affected by former U.S. President Donald Trump's zero-tolerance immigration policy, which separated children from their parents and guardians. This week, the ACLU reached a settlement with the Biden administration after it sued on behalf of families affected by Trump-era family separation. Lee Gallert was lead counsel. He's the deputy director of the ACLU Immigrants' Rights Project. He's in New York. Lee, how many families do you expect will benefit from this settlement? We estimate between 4,500 and 5,000 families will benefit from the settlement, perhaps more. But thousands of little children will benefit from this The families will get basic benefits, and most importantly, they will be a special asylum process, and hopefully that will mean they're never sent back to danger. The other indispensable part of this Mm -hmm. settlement for us was that the government agreed not to do the family separation policy again, and that was absolutely critical for us that they agree to do that. You first came on our program back in 2018 to talk about this. At the time, you represent you were representing a Congolese asylum seeker who was separated from her seven-year-old daughter at the time. How did that case grow into what we're seeing today? What happened was that we had been hearing that there were these separations, but no one was exactly sure what was going on. I went out to San Diego where she was in detention, heard her story, saw how desperate she was. She hadn't seen her little seven-year-old in four months. She hadn't been eating. She was gaunt, depressed. And so what we did is we immediately fought on her behalf, got her reunited. And a couple of weeks later, in the beginning of March 2018, we expanded it to a national class action because by that time, we heard that there were maybe three, four, five hundred families that have been separated. What was shocking is that when we finally got a court order holding this policy unlawful and requiring the government, the Trump administration at the time, to reunify the families. The government said that there were roughly 2,800, and that shocked us. But unfortunately, the number kept growing and growing, and now we know that at least 5,500 families were separated, probably many more. How, how is that Congolese family doing now? Uh, they're doing well. I can't talk specifically mm-hmm. about them for legal reasons, but... They are reunited, and the last time I saw them, they were doing very well. Even when, as people, well as can be expected. Well, I was going to say because even when people are, are reunited, this is this is a staggering and I would imagine traumatic thing to happen to to young children and their families. So, what kinds of well, I'm, I'm, what kind of impact yeah. do they do you see now? Yeah, I'm, I'm so glad you emphasized that because what people need to understand is not just that we believe there are a thousand children who are still not with their parents years later or have grown up largely their whole lives without their parents but even once we reunify families it's not as if everything is automatically better we just were with a family with a three-year-old who was separated for 10 weeks when he finally returned home he would stand by the window looking to see if men were going to come and take them away again we had a four-year-old who when he went to sleep every night would ask his mother, are they going to come into my room and take me away again? That's the kind of vulnerability and trauma that many of these children may live with the rest of their lives. And it's also the parents who are understandably grief-stricken about what happened. Many of the children were too young to understand what was happening. The first thing they would say to their parents when they got back was, didn't you love me enough to stop them from taking me? Why didn't you want me anymore? Why didn't you fight the people? We're taking them away. And the parents have to live with that. So there are families just trying to repair that parent-child relationship now. And that's no easy thing. Does this settlement include compensation, financial compensation, money? It does not. That has always been 
sep- in separate lawsuits. Mm-hmm. And so those lawsuits, there are many of them. This was a class action just by the ACLU on behalf of all the families for the non-monetary benefits, including in-kind assistance, housing, medical benefits. But the monetary compensation are part of separate lawsuits, individual lawsuits. The government has settled a handful of those. We are pressing the government now to provide monetary compensation more broadly, and I, we will turn to that now. We recently uh, did, a, did an interview about the report that the Independent Federal Court Monitor put out, and he stressed it was different than what we'd seen under the Trump administration's policy, but he said children as young as eight had been separated from their parents for days because of overcrowding. So how does this settlement affect what the what the Biden administration can and cannot do now? So it prevents the Biden administration from engaging in the type of Trump policies that were at issue in this case. But we don't believe the Biden administration was ever intending to do mm-hmm. something like that. It's more important if a future administration were to come in and try and do it again. The type of thing that was going on in the monitor's report is very different. That is separation within the same facility for a few days, and I don't want to minimize that, but those aren't permanent separations. Once the family is released, they're released together. It's unfortunate that during a period of overcrowding, they were put in separate rooms, often because it's a father and don't want to mix them with um, young children, Mm -hmm. young girl children. But that's unfortunate. We believe it's being fixed now. But it's not, you know, again, not to minimize it, but it's not the same mm-hmm. thing. When you when you said earlier that the government has agreed to not continue this practice uh, in its most difficult form, as you were saying, as, as what was carried out under the Trump administration, are there exceptions, though? And if there are, how do you make sure that that those boundaries aren't stretched? Well, I think that's a very important question. One is that we will need help from all the advocates on the ground to let us know whether they are seeing it. We have also put in provisions requiring documentation of every separation. Uh, You know, but if if a new administration is ultimately intent on trying to get around it, we will have to rely on people on the ground letting us know about it. I think people are much more attuned to looking out for it now. There are, of course, exceptions, but we've always said that there need to be separations in rare cases where it's important for the child's best interest. So separations can still occur where the child is being abused or there's very serious crimes by the parent. But ultimately, if the government's going to comply with the settlement, then there shouldn't be this type of family separation policy. But we will be very much monitoring what's going on and rush back to court if we see any noncompliance. And is there a time frame, a time limit on this, eight years? Yeah, that's another good question. So there are two, generally two different time frames. There's six years for getting the benefits to the families that were separated under the Trump administration. We think that's sufficient. The part of the settlement that's forward-looking that bars future separations based on this kind of zero-tolerance policy lasts for eight years. If after eight years any administration is still thinking about family separation, then we would file a new constitutional case in court using the precedent we've set. But for at least eight years, we can go into court and say they're violating the settlement. I appreciate your time, Lee. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me again. Lee Gallant is a lawyer and the deputy director of the ACLU Immigrants' Rights Project. He's in New York. When you're pulling certain heists, you have to be precise and you have to be cool. First, you put on your heist ensemble, all black everything. Then you lower yourself into the museum with a grappling hook. Then you dance an intricate pas de deux with the security lasers. And finally, you swap a fake giant emerald for the real one, zip back up to the roof, and helicopter away. Sophisticated and impressive, hence the music. But in other heists, you just load a bunch of porta-potties on a truck like a jerk, and they slosh everywhere, and it's sloppy and unimaginative and gross. The music for that would be uh, someone playing a tuba clumsily while someone else hits a garbage can lid at irregular intervals. Do we have that sound? 
Uh, no. Well, that's fine. Anyway, on Sunday, someone broke into a racetrack in Herefordshire, England, and stole 35 extremely heavy portable toilets, many of which were full because of an event the day before, and therefore even heavier than usual and putrid. No wonder the head of the company that owns the porta potty says he's slightly baffled by it. He also asks, who on earth steals toilets? He actually wants to know, of course, but it's also a rhetorical question. Sure, they are each worth over $1,500 Canadian, but who steals them? What kind of crass non-master thief? Are they just going to pull up to a pawn shop with three dozen fetid portable toilets and say they just found them in the attic? Because if they do, the pawn shop owner will just hear this. Mm-hmm. Exactly. You've been listening to the As It Happens podcast. Our show can be heard Monday to Friday on CBC Radio 1, following the world at 6. You can also listen to the show online at cbc.ca slash AIH or on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening. I'm Neil Kirksall. And I'm Chris Howden. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.